Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth, and it's mailbag time. We're answering mailbag questions on this week's B-Side. Before we get to that, as usual, my housekeeping notes, please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Rating, reviewing, subscribing to the show really helps us get in front of more people, and I really appreciate you for doing so. Hop in our Discord channel. It's popping in there. The links for that are in the show notes and in our bios on Instagram and Twitter. Please go join that group. Talk about pop. Meet some cool people. Talk to me sometimes great little situation going on over there check out the spotify playlist for every episode in the show notes of that episode too i like to remind people of that if you're enjoying episodes and you want to get into the music of that artist there's a spotify playlist for that announcement that the next gorgeous gorgeous my queer pop party in la is happening on october 22nd that's a saturday at resident in downtown los angeles so come out queers allies pop lovers i'll be there playing pop all night it is so much fun ticket link for that is in the show notes of this episode i will also post them on pop pantheon's instagram would love to see you guys there love meeting pop pantheon listeners at gorgeous gorgeous great melding of two expressions of my love of pop music this podcast and that party so i hope to see some of you guys there on october 22nd at resident in downtown la head over to our website and buy our niche legend dad hat they're flying off the shelves the hottest item for fall they're gorgeous black and hot pink niche legend on the front pop pantheon on the back all the cool kids are getting them, so go to poppantheonpod.com, cop your niche legend dad hat, and while you're there, please fill out our listener survey. We're trying to get some feedback from all of you guys about what you like about the show, what you want more of, what's been your favorite aspects of it. You can leave comments, questions, concerns, whatever you want. We're trying to collect that in the next week or two and assess from there. So go over to the website, poppantheonpod.com, get your hat. Fill out the survey or just fill out the survey if you don't want the hat or just get the hat if you don't fill out the survey (laughs) and thank you for doing so. And without further ado, you guys sent in so many amazing questions, mostly via voice notes, some via text and email. So I asked Pop Pantheon Jack of all trades, Russ Martin, who helps me make the show every week to come and answer all your amazing questions with me and... God, we talk about so many things. We talk about Pantheon-related questions. We talk about Janet, and we talk about Nikki, and we talk about Dua, and we talk about Britney, and we talk about Elton John and David Bowie. Wow, it was a really wide-ranging question. We also give a little how the sausage is made at the end. Anyway, so without further ado, here is our listener mailbag episode. All right, so I'm here with my right-hand girly pop Pantheon gay schemer extraordinaire, Russ Martin. Russ, as always, it is a pleasure to be with you. Hi, Lou. I'm so happy to be here for this audience episode. <laughs> Me too. They missed you. They were fucking pissed that you weren't on the Chromatica Ball episode. <laughs> I did go to Chromatica Ball, and spoiler alert, I loved it. <laughs> okay, fine. That more than makes up for it, I guess. I don't know if you saw that in the Discord. They were really upset about that. They were like, no, Russ. Someone, I saw someone say, oh, Russ isn't on the episode, not listening. Oh, girl. Well, yeah. please listen to our episodes. That was a great episode. I loved hearing everything from all of your friends. Yes. Uh, the, the short and long of it is I love the brutalist architecture of the set <laughs> and I thought it was bold that she did her first three biggest hits <laughs> up top. There's my Chromatica mini-sode. I oh, snuck it in. That's so funny. Oh my god. Also, every episode contains Russ whether you hear him or not. So if you're not <laughs> listening to episodes because he's not appearing on them, 
you're hurting him too. Like that's it's not true. right. Okay. It's true. Anyway, so we're not here to talk about chromatic ball. We spent enough time talking about chromatic ball. We're here to answer mailbag questions. We asked for listeners to send in voice notes and written questions. And a lot of you delivered on the voice notes, which I'm thrilled about because it was so much fun to listen to everybody's voices. And everybody sent in such a panoply of interesting questions related to pop, related to the podcast, related to the Pantheon, especially our listeners on the Discord, who I want to say we did give priority to. They are some of our most engaged listeners. So we got a lot of great questions from some Discord regulars who uh, we have come to know and love deeply, Russ. We think of them as our children, right? And um, we absolutely do. We yes. do. So before we get into it, obviously make sure you're following Pot Pantheon Pod on Instagram to make sure that you catch callouts for future mailbag episodes. Because we also got quite a few good questions from my little sticker when I asked for questions. I feel like we got some good questions in there. So a lot of different questions, a lot of interesting things to get into. Russ, you're going to lead the way on this. You're gonna. We all listen to the. We listen to all the calls, but you have organized this. So. Take us, take it away. Where, where are we going? So we've got so many thoughtful, complex, very interesting questions, and also some light and silly ones. The audience really delivered, so thank you so much. We've got some voice notes, also the questions from Instagram and from email, so some of them I'm going to read. I want to start out with a really fun voice call. Are you ready for our first call, Louis? Am I ready? Man, I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Hi, Louis and Russ. It's Martin from Scotland here. Now, as a listener from the greatest pop country in the whole world, the UK, I've got a very simple UK-based question for you. Who is the greatest British pop star of all time, and is it Robbie Williams? Yes, I think it probably is. Also, Louis, I know that you love Spice Girls, so if you had to pick yourself as one of the Spice Girls, which one would you be? Russ, you can pick one as well, and if you wanted to add three of your esteemed guests who you've had on the show as one of the Spice Girls to make up to five, then feel free. Thanks, guys. I love the show. Bye. Let's start with the first part of the question there. Who is the greatest British pop star? (laughs) I, like, thought about this a little bit. I mean, I don't think it's Robbie Williams, but, like, (laughs) I know British people have a deep affection for Robbie Williams. All right, well, here's one question I have. Maybe you can help me with this, Russ. Like, do we think of the Beatles in this category? Like, are Beatles pop stars? Because if so, I think the obvious answer is probably John Lennon. You know, the Beatles definitely are pop stars in some contexts. They're not who I think of as the greatest British pop star because they are a rock act in my head, though they're undeniably a pop sensation. And we would do an episode on them. We would definitely do an episode on the Beatles. And and we will do an episode on the Beatles. Yes. I think the other person that jumped to my mind as like the other really obvious answer is Elton John. Yeah. For me, I think that it's David Bowie. Also a rock star, obviously in his own right, but in terms of the contributions that have been made to what a pop star is and can be, I think David Bowie added so much iconography, really reinvented things, and the idea of the persona, which we've seen all the way through Gaga, through Sasha Fierce, all of these incredible theatrics that were brought to the table, I feel like David Bowie has given the pop star figure so much. So for me, it's going to be David Bowie. That was one of the other people I wrote down because I thought to myself, I saw the documentary this weekend. I don't know if you guys heard mm. about this. It's called Moon Age Daydream. And yeah, I, I spent the entire time thinking like what a blueprint this 
guy was because as you said it was like we have talked how many episodes of the show do we talk about how kind of creating this 360 degree version of pop stardom in the 80s with mtv blah 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 but like he really was doing that in the 70s so Mm -hmm. i think that's definitely a good answer elton david if we're not including like mick jagger and john lennon who i sort of feel like maybe we should be including because they feel like really important a couple others that came to mind as really important to me would be George Michael, mm-hmm. Annie Lennox, Sting, Definitely. Freddie Mercury, yep. Boy George, Phil Collins. These feel lower down. I think the answer to your question is probably Elton or David Bowie, if we're not including Mick Jagger and John Lennon. And then I think in the next tier down, probably Rita Ora. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about Elton John that makes him such a great British pop star to you? I just think, look at the track record and his hits. I mean, Elton John is one of the greatest pop stars of all time, period. Like, I think if you were going to name the top, let's say, 20, 15, 10, I don't know, pop figures of all time, I feel like both David Bowie and Elton John would be on that list, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so if you're just thinking about it in that context, I don't think there's any way that it wouldn't be those two. I think it's kind of obvious in that way. I think the bigger question is a question we stumble on on the show a lot, which is like, how do you incorporate a subgenre like a rock band into Mm -hmm. the pop star pantheon. But like Mm -hmm. John Lennon is arguably one of the greatest top three greatest pop figures of all time, right? So to me, I'm tempted to sort of say that. But if if we're excluding that, I just feel like Elton and David Bowie both together formed the blueprint for a lot of what pop stardom is. And they have the hits and longevity to back it up. David Bowie remained an icon till his death with a lot of commercial prowess. And Mm -hmm. Elton John to this day had a top 10 hit like two weeks ago. So I mean, yeah, you know, so I think that it speaks for itself. All right. So that's capital G greatest. However, my favorite pop act is the second part of the question. It's definitely the Spice Girls. And the second part of the question is very fun because it feels like a childhood recess game. Everyone who was really into pop had a Spice Girl that they liked to play at recess. Mm -hmm. Louis, who were you? in the Spice Girls as a kid. Scary. Ooh. Yeah, I was obsessed with Scary. I thought Scary was the most freewheeling and aspirationally gregarious, outgoing, funny. And I actually liked her style the best. I loved her hair, like the little buns, and then also like the head full of buns. And then... Her whole just kind of kick-ass, but still sexy. Like, I feel like she kind of combined the sort of, like, kick-ass wing of the Spice Girls, which is, like, sporty, and then, like, the sexier, more sensual wing of the Spice Girls, which is, like, ginger and baby and posh on some level. Like, I felt like she was a nice kind of, like, amalgam of them all. But I really just thought she was fierce. And so that was my favorite. What was yours? I was definitely a ginger. (laughs) Something about her, she had a power as a woman for Mm. me as like a little child she seemed so so powerful right and like so much fun yeah and yeah i just loved her and i she has some great solo hits as well i know that we all hate her for leaving but (laughs) i kind of love the first member to leave a band uh am i the drama maybe Our next question is one that I thought was fascinating. It comes from Tom, who is better known as Mossy on our Mossy, Discord. the Mossy. icon himself. All right, I'm going to hit it. Hey, Louie. Love the podcast. I was wondering how you would go about ranking an artist who 
was taken from us too soon. Um, I'm thinking people like Selena, Amy Winehouse, Aaliyah, you know, people who just don't have the decades of music for us to look back on, but had a big impact and legendary status, um, lots of unfulfilled potential. Would you factor any of that in, or would you just look on what they did provide us to do the ranking? Or would you maybe avoid ranking people like this at all? Uh, would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. So I always think about the Pantheon as kind of a cold, hard look at things. But then I also think we factor in like a je ne sais quoi. So I think there's two sides to this coin, which is that we look at the legacy as it stands with what we had. At the end of the day, we can't like imagine what somebody posthumously like could have done. I don't know. Like I think that that's too tricky of a game to imagine. Like, of course, it's fun to play a thought experiment and think about like what Kurt Cobain or Amy Winehouse or Notorious B.I.G. could have done and what their body of work might have looked like had they had the lives that they were meant to have. But at the same time, and I know that this might be like a little bit of like a morbid thing to say, but I do think mythology feels important to the Pantheon mm. and... I think that in ways that I think are worth examining because it's not necessarily the greatest thing that we do things this way. But like an early death can weirdly like freeze you in time and add to your legacy in ways that are a little hard to pin down as to exactly why. But think about all of these artists. Like I was thinking about when I heard this question about Amy Winehouse, who like ultimately produced arguably two, but really one album that feels like it's going to like live on forever as the thing and really only made two studio albums and Toto. But like we think about her as her legacy feels so much bigger than that one album. Now, is that just because that one album is the classic that it is on its own, whether she lived or died? Partially. But I think it would be a farce to say that there isn't part of that that has to do with the fact that that's all we're ever going to get from her. And it sort of adds to her myth and her legend and like makes it all seem grander than just the music would have been maybe on its own. And then the other part of it is that when an artist dies at their peak or moving towards their peak or somewhere in the peak of their music, like Amy, like Kurt, like Biggie, you're also not subjected to the like years of downfall that mm. like sometimes can have an effect on an artist's legacy. Like they didn't get to the part of their lives where they are making questionable music or like getting canceled or like whatever, you know what I mean? So I think it plays in in those ways, but I don't think that it can play in in a way of like, we just in a sort of Machiavellian way, like say like, well, you know, we have to inflate Amy Winehouse's importance because she only had a chance to make two albums so we can just imagine what she might have done in a longer career. Like, no, like we assess what's out there. Does that answer the question? I don't know. I think that that answers the question. And as a little teaser, we will have an artist coming up that you will get to see how a artist who passed away too soon has been placed into the Pantheon. We actually have a couple. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that we actually haven't tackled this a whole lot and yeah. we are about to. So mm -hmm. stay tuned. All right. I have a question up next from Jared that comes via Instagram. Uh -huh. Jared writes, where do you stand for an artist's credibility with collabs versus solo songs and the overall impact of an artist's features in their pop pantheon ranking and popularity with the general population? I noticed that you were extremely brief with talking about moves like Jagger and Say Something 
on the Extina episode, but if you asked a random general population person to name a Christina hit song, they're more likely to name moves like Jagger or say something instead of dirty, your body, or ain't no other man. I remember when Ariana was first getting popular, people on Twitter would tease she always needed a collab to have hit song. Iggy with problems, Ed with break free, bag bang, side to side, etc. Obviously, Ariana has had many hits and proves she doesn't need a feature. Some of her most recent big hits have been solo songs. This idea intrigues me, and I'm curious, what do you think? So, Louis, what do you think? I try to do my best to include features when I feel like they're pertinent to the artist's legacy. With moves like Jagger in particular, obviously an important song for Christina, but I don't see her as like the most important piece of that song for some reason. Like I sort of see her as like a little bit of like as an afterthought. I don't know if that's just a wrong headed way of thinking about it, but who Christina was, was incredibly crystallized in the public imagination by the time that that song became popular. Yeah. It wasn't changing her as a pop star, even though it was commercially very successful. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. Like I just, I, and I mean, just to be clear, just on a technical level, like, you know, we have to make sure that we talk about like what I feel are the most important aspects of an artist's career in a limited amount of time, usually for someone, usually these artists have had lots going on. So we try to just pick the things that I personally feel like are the most pertinent to helping tell the artist's story. But there are artists to whom features are really important and they do mean something. I think that in order for them to like get mentioned on the show or talked about in depth, they have to feel like they're telling us something about the artist or either on a musical level or in terms of their commercial success that adds to their story, that adds something to painting the picture of them that feels like it can't be left out. That's what I try to keep in the show is like what can't be left out for someone to walk away and like get a sense of this person's career and impact and artistry. It's like Moves Like Jagger is a big hit, but I don't think you need to hear or understand Moves Like Jagger to understand like what Christina Aguilera's impact was. So that does happen. I mean, it is true that features... I'm trying to think of a good example of like an episode that we've done where like a feature has been like... What about Nikki? Yeah, Nikki. We talked a lot about features. I mean, I think we could have talked even more about features on that episode, but I think that's a great example. But I don't think like this is what you came for. Like it's a big hit, but I don't think that that's necessarily something that like needs to be dissected in the way that Umbrella does. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And there are many features that are renter rappers and then you have some features that are Aerosmith with Run DMC and that is a really important meeting of two acts for the stories of those bands right and that is not always the case so i think what you're saying is that not all features are created equal no and i think oftentimes features when you are the feature i don't know if i want to even say this but i mean maybe like on the large part they're generally less important than your original material, mostly, mm-hmm. with many of notable exceptions to that rule. Yeah, excellent. All right, our next question comes to us from Gus from Chicago, and let's play it. Hi, Louie. This is Gus from Chicago. Uh, my question is, uh, it came up in the Bloghouse episode, which is one of my favorite episodes because that was like my coming of age uh, what is what are your thoughts on poptimism? You're really good at being like not value neutral, but very open to like the twists and turns of culture. But I guess I'm just wondering, what's your thoughts on poptimism? I mean, is it is it just a full net positive? Um, 
I mean, it was, I don't know. It was very strange when I went to my Robin and Khalees duo show, a double headliner show in 2010, one of my favorite concerts. It was so gay. And then going to the, the 2016 Carly Rae Jepsen Emotions tour, and it was so straight. And it's just interesting. And I don't know. But, like, would we even have Carly Rae Jepsen's moment or, like, Charlie XCX without the poptimism? Um, like, you know, Pitchfork is just, I mean, it's Condé Nast, too, but Pitchfork is just so pop. Um, but meanwhile, you know, I don't know. What are your thoughts on poptimism? I don't know if this is boring. I'm sorry. Thank you. Love the pod. I don't think that's boring. I don't think so either. Poptimism constantly comes up and I think in many ways has shaped your understanding of music, your celebration of music, and has been a dominant part of the critical valuation of the body of pop work over the past decade, especially. Yeah. The question is like, is it a net positive? Are there negatives? I mean, I'd say it definitely is a net positive. I think that I'd say that like the thing that this made me think about was in terms of like what could be the downsides of optimism are the way that standing and critical discourse have now fused into one and like almost undermined optimism in a way in my mind, because I do think There's so little quality music criticism these days. Literally, like, I feel like we get to talk to on the show the cream of the crop, right? But there's so much other shit out there on the internet that is, like, taken seriously that I read. And I'm just like, this isn't music criticism. (laughs) Like, this is standing. There's a mad dash to sort of crown every major pop release as some sort of hugely important, amazing, critical darling that I just feel like feels wrong to me. I think there's not enough true... That would be like maybe a downside of pop dress. Like there's not enough true criticism of pop music anymore, I sometimes feel like, aside from a few places that still allow that to happen. Because I think a lot of publications are like afraid to alienate stars that they might have to interact with on other parts of their editorial side. I think that that could be a downside of it. Because what I really loved about poptimism, quote unquote, or the ideas that poptimism is attempting to sort of put out there is that we should take pop music and criticize it in the same way that we do all other forms of music that we provide academic critical discourse to, right? Like that's the idea of poptimism. It's not to say that all pop music should be like elevated, like it's, you know, some sort of manna from heaven without providing any academic rigor to it. So I do think that the reason poptimism was good was because it said not that pop music is good or perfect or greater than any other. It's that it should be assessed on the same playing field. So that is a positive. That is a good thing. That is why this show exists. That's what we are attempting to do here is to take this stuff seriously. So I do think the answer to your question is that it is a net positive that we take pop music on its own terms with seriousness and despite maybe some negative things that are like only tangentially related in terms of standing etc i think it's definitely a good thing that poptimism happened and exists we love that pop music is considered worthy of inquiry yeah i mean that's like what we're doing on the show and i think that's what fans of the show are responding to is that there were so many decades where listening to pop music was seen as some sort of fault something to be looked down upon and taking it 
seriously as art, that is a good thing. <laughs> I think that that I don't I think it's an unequivocally good thing. All right. Next up, we have a call from Nick. Hello, DJ Louie, big fan of the pod. My question is about flop eras. Um, who are some of the prominent pop stars who had one? Was it bad? Was it good? Are they almost mandatory for a pop star to go through if they want to have a long career? Um, yeah, just opening the floor to flop eras. All things flop, Louis. What do you think? <laughs> I was thinking about this. I don't think that they're quote unquote mandatory, but I also think they're sort of inevitable. Mm -hmm. Here's one question that I was thinking about. All right, so let me explain that first and then I'm going to ask you something, Russ. What I mean by inevitable is that if you're a pop figure, you've got kind of like two roots to your career with a lot in between. One is you are a flash in the pan to some degree and then you like enter a flop era that never ends. Or you have a long career, in which case you're gonna have some material that doesn't do as well. Like, if your career is going on for 20, 30 years, inevitably some of that stuff is gonna do less well than other stuff. And flop eras are usually relative based on the star. Mm -hmm. So, like, four is not a flop for most artists, it sold many millions of copies and debuted, I think, with 400,000 first week or something like that. But in Beyonce's discography, four is kind of a flop. It had no top 20 singles. It sold less albums than the three albums that had come before it. So my question is that I'm curious for your feedback on, Russ, is does a flop era, quote, flop era, think of the words, necessarily mean that you came back from the era. Like, otherwise your career just kind of ends. You know what I mean? Like, would we say that Taylor Dane has been in her flop era <laughs> since 19... I mean, she's been releasing music somewhat consistently over the last 30 years, but we don't know about it. Is that a flop era? Or is that just like her career ended? Whereas like, a great easy example of what I think we mean when we say flop era is Mariah Carey's glitter and charm bracelet, which was followed by a massive commercial comeback. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that a flop era can end the career. It's hard to say. I see, I yes. see. You don't know whether or not you are in a flop era until you are out of one or remain in it forever. So like, is Sierra in a flop era for the last 20 years? I think Sierra had a flop era that she never recovered from. Right, 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 right. So like, Bionic, a flop era, but like, the fact that she, neither of the albums after Bionic have done well either are not flop era. No, that's how I feel. I think right. that we would call Bionic the flop era. Right. And I think that to be considered a flop, it also has to be impressively unsuccessful in comparison to what right. came before it. Right. Although, like, I don't know that internet culture takes that same tact at this point. I think anything that can be even, like, marginally seen as disappointing. Like, a song hitting number four instead of number one could be seen as a flop to some people on the internet. I also think, though, that as soon as you have a flop, you are open to a critical reevaluation, particularly by pop heads and 
Right. Especially gay people. I was thinking this too. I was like, flop eras can be iconic. Like, mm -hmm. I, bionic I, is iconic. Bionic is iconic. iconic. And, and also, like, when the artist really goes for it and reclaims that. When I saw Mariah on tour recently, she, like, did a whole tribute to Glitter. Like, she's clearly into her iconic flop era. I think that flop eras are somewhat inevitable. I really mm -hmm. do think that. It's inevitable for the two reasons that we just laid out. It's like either you have a flop error that ends your career or you have a flop error because your career is so long that like I'm trying to think, are there pop stars that had a long career that did not have a flop era? Michael Jackson, maybe? Rihanna? Yeah. Yeah. T. That's true. Yeah. I will ask you this. Do you have a so-called flop era that you have a particular affinity for or a flop era that you would love to rescue? Meaning, like, is there an album that flopped from a major star that I, like, feel an affinity for? Correct, yes. I don't know why this comes to mind, but Brandy's Aphrodisiac. Ooh, great one. Yeah. That is maybe my favorite Brandy album, and I do not to this day understand why that wasn't the biggest album on earth. Like, I just think it's her greatest work. That or Full Moon, it's hard to say, but I just love that album so much and it was definitely like a huge commercial come down for her. And that's one that I'm always like, what the fuck? Why wouldn't people be into this? I don't understand. Obsessed, elite answer. Great. Yeah, great. <laughs> All right. Our next listener question comes to us via email. It reads, something your pantheon has got me thinking about is pop girls who put out what I consider to be niche legend worthy work that doesn't catch on. In the past couple of years, I've loved The Kick by Foxes and Crave by Kaiza. To me, they're both solid dance pop records with sustained vibes, varieties and emotions and unique points of view. In each case, though, they just kind of came and went. And even spaces devoted to pop music obsession, like r slash popheads on Reddit, seem to have slept on them. What do you think makes the difference between niche pop legends like Carly and Charlie and also rands like Foxes and Kaiza? So I think this is a good question. And I, I sort of feel like I don't have a definitive answer because I think sometimes this shit is confusing and it's hard to understand why something catches fire and something else doesn't. But I was thinking in terms of this particular question, you know, while Kaiza and Foxes have had mainstream hits, neither of them have had mainstream hits as monumental as Call Me Maybe or Fancy. Mm. I also think that when it comes to Charlie, her music is singularly innovative and that's a huge engine behind her niche legendum. Like she's not just another girl making solid pop music that's not getting listened to by enough people. Like she's seen as an auteur, alternative, avant-garde pop figure who like pushes the conversation forward in meaningful ways that allows her to be a massive providence for music critics and I think that's a really important thing that separates a Charlie from a Foxes. Mm. Foxes album is good, but I don't think the music critic community is going out there and pointing to Foxes in the same way that they point to Charlie as someone who is lighting the way on Pop's future or like MIA being another person that could have filled those shoes 15 years ago. I think that's Charlie's case. For Carly, emotion was uniquely adored and perfect. Mm. And people love that album 
for good reason. It's a really, really, really amazing album. Like, I think it's, you know, one of the top 25 pop albums of the decade for sure. So that's just a quality question. Like Fox's album is good. Is Fox's album as good as Emotion is? Is Kaiser's album as good as Emotion is? And then with both of them, they're also aping Emotion's sound. I mean, those Kaiser songs, Crave and All of the Feelings are straight up Emotion songs. And so are many of those Fox's songs. So Carly's emotion was an original of sorts. I'm not saying she's the first person to do an 80s homage, but there was something seminal about the alt-pop girly space being a thing where you explore 1980s aesthetics or something in the 2010s that I feel like she was the first in this wave to do. So Mm. she was the first and that album remains the best iteration of that thing. So there's that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the unique combination of that and also having one of the biggest hits, fluke hits of all time. That's my best guess. I don't think either the Fox's album or the Kai's album, where I like them both, are nearly as good as Emotion. I have a slightly more cynical take. Go on. So part of it is quality. Part of it, to me, is marketing. And mm. I don't mean label muscle. I mean image and story i think that charlie is a really wonderful image maker there has been a really identifiable image around kim petrus for example right i think that there is a cultural narrative around carly being the one who survived the one hit wonder and i there's a story to be told and with Fox's, Kaiza, many, many, many artists that I love, there isn't a story or an image that is in addition to the music. And I think that you need that to be a niche legend. I think that's true. But I do think that like Carly is weirdly personality-less as a public figure. Mm-hmm. I really... The, this, she didn't write the story. Write Other the people story. wrote that story. Yeah, you know, and, I, and when I was thinking about this too, I was like, also, none of Carly's post-emotion music has registered that high. You know, it's like, no. it, she will literally be a legend forever because of emotion. Those albums just don't come along that often, like where there's this kind of like coalescing narrative around this being the best thing ever. It just was a moment. It was a moment. And also there was less of them in that space at that time too. I think that's another important factor here. Like this niche legend space is crowded now. It used to be less crowded. Like in the early 2010s, it was like, like Robin, okay, yeah, we had Robin working it out, but there weren't like a ton of other people like in that space, and it's literally in parallel to the decade transpiring. Now that space is so wide and open that it's harder for any one of these things to get the amount of attention that body talk or emotion will get from the niche audience. You know what I mean? Like there's so much out there. There's so many niche pop girlies out there. Like there's a lot of them. And that wasn't always the case, you know? And that's also what we talk about on the show all the time. Like emotion was a pivotal, I think, moment in creating that space. All right, next we have a call from Kelsey who has a question for you about DJs. Hi, Louie. This year, I got curious about the group Delight beyond their hit record, Groove is in the Heart, and wound up listening to them a lot. Their albums, along with Renaissance and the Beyonce and Disco episodes of this pod, had me thinking about the role of the DJ, so I figured who better to ask than a DJ and pop thinker like you. My questions are twofold. 
Um, first, what do you think is the role of the DJ in the modern pop landscape? And second, um, when DJs cross over to become pop artists like DJ Khaled and Calvin Harris, um, what do you think makes that transition successful? Thanks. So I think it's important to lay out here for people that there's really two types of what we refer to as DJs, and they're pretty different things. So one is a DJ like me, an open format party rocking DJ who is playing other people's music in order to make a fun club night or fun wedding or event or whatever. And we have a role. And then there is the quote unquote DJ Calvin Harris, David Guetta, Swedish House Mafia, who are functionally music producers. And I think that that's like a really important distinction to make here. Like they're really two totally different things, more or less, that like overlap only very slightly. And I sometimes think of the sort of Calvin Harris producer DJ thing, almost as if Max Martin wanted to put his name in front of the song. You know what I mean? If like Hit Me Maybe One More Time was Max Martin featuring Britney Spears is the same idea kind of similarly to like what Calvin Harris does. Like he's producing a song and writing a song the same way that Max Martin is and he's having a pop singer come in and sing it. The difference being that Max Martin works in the old school way where the producer is a behind the scenes actor who like gets credit in liner notes and isn't an artist in front artist. They're obviously artists, but they're not like, you know, an out front artist. And the D these DJ producers are sort of like finding a way to make the producer the lead artist, if, some, if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. and I think DJ Khaled, who's not even really a producer, I mean, he only dabbles in production, but like those albums are his vision that he's corralling into some sort of work. So I essentially would think of those DJs, Calvin Harris, DJ Khaled, they're like the equivalent of producers, more or less, who are the lead artist. <laughs> like as if the producer was the lead artist who could then perform their music by DJing it, which is in that case, often just like hitting play, which is so different than like an open format working stiff DJ who is synthesizing all of pop music or all of whatever genre you're interested in playing into some sort of package that makes people dance or makes a party fun. That's different to me. I don't know if that's answering the question, but that was what came to mind. What about in terms of the Pantheon? Do DJs have a place as pop stars in the Pantheon? And perhaps are there many DJs that would get into tier three or maybe even tier two? What about the Pantheon part of it? I think if someone is saying they're an artist and they're working in the pop space, like we will assess them as such. That, that's what I would say. I mean, I think there's absolutely no reason why we wouldn't assess Calvin Harris as a pop star. He has numerous albums and pop hits that bear his name. We're not here to say, oh, you're not a pop star because you don't sing the majority of your songs. Like if you're the lead artist on hit songs, I think that that qualifies you as a pop star. What do you yeah. think? I, what is coming to mind as you're talking for me is Daft Punk. Right. And Great. Daft Punk kind of invented this, right? Yeah. Daft Punk are DJs in performance style. Right. They are not up there doing choreography or playing live instruments. They are behind a pair of decks and they are massive pop stars. They yeah. are huge and they absolutely would have super a place recognizable, in the super visual, reinvented in different eras, like absolutely. all of these things that we talk about. Yeah. Daft Punk comes to mind as being really foundational for DJs in this space. And yeah. I hope that together answers the question. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because Daft Punk 
punk also like there is this model of DJing that Calvin Harris that Calvin Harris does where it's like Calvin Harris's album features like 900 other pop stars like singing those songs right like recognizable pop stars that's something Daft Punk necessarily did as much that makes mm-hmm. it interesting because like when you hear this is what you came for who do you think of you know do you think of Rihanna do you think of Calvin Harris I'm not sure I do think that they're pop stars if they position themselves as such I take them as such excellent the next question that we have is about a once great franchise in pop music history. It comes from Chelsea. Let's play it. Hi, Louie and Russ. Listening to the pod, especially the TRL episode, has unlocked some core memories for me. And I was wondering if VH1 Divas was still in our culture. May she rest in peace. Who do you think would be headlining and guest performing or who would you want? Thanks. I miss VH1 Divas too. They should definitely bring that back. Don't you think? Oh, I think that it would be incredible. What is VH1 even doing now? I don't think that VH1 has the cultural cachet or the budget to bring in the caliber of people that they did around VH1. But it would be very cool, A, to see a group of powerful women singers come together and also, I am just nostalgic for the brand of it. Weren't they usually like fetting an older diva? Wasn't that kind of like the vibe? I know they did like a tribute to Donna Summer. They did like a tribute to Shaka Khan. I don't know. Like, I feel like wasn't that kind of the vibe of it? It would be like contemporary divas fetting older divas or Aretha. Correct. Yes. Yep. What was asked is I believe that there's sort of two tiers. So right. there's the headliners and then the featured. Right. So the headliners now would be in the place of the Aretha. Aretha. Right. Who would be that? Like Mariah. It's all mm-hmm. the ones that were singing at the ones that we watched. It's like Mariah, Celine, you know, maybe Beyonce at this point. Mm-hmm. Whitney, obviously. Tony Braxton. Ooh, Tony. Yeah. The, the Divas thing was about celebrating voice. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if we would have to redefine Diva for the new era. Because in that era, in that late 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, early 90s, like when we said Diva, like we didn't call Britney a Diva at that time. I think now no. we might call Britney a Diva sort of, but like, I don't think. It was exclusively for people who belted. Belted. It was still like in that opera Diva lineage where it was about having a booming singing voice. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would still be like that now if we did it? Or would we have to broaden the definition of pop diva? Because I think now when we say pop diva, we think about a broader thing than we think about just voice. Yes, but I don't think that the idea of a pop diva was around there. I think it was just a diva and diva was relative to singing more so than it was relative to being a pop star. Right. Let's keep the format of it right. being belters yeah so i think the obvious number one person that would tribute would be ariana great right and i feel like she would get the ethos of this whole thing gaga obviously the problem is they wouldn't have the firepower to like line up artists that big and they'd end up with her you know like (laughs) that's what would happen (laughs) (laughs) they'd end up with like her and chloe Like, in you know our dream I mean? scenario, we're getting the people that we want. I think Ariana, Gaga. I think Demi. Demi, absolutely Demi, yeah. for sure. Demi's got the pipes. But like, they're not going to let Billy come on the show? Listen, I say no. If I'm booking it, I don't think that Billy is a diva. 
the style of singing that she does is diametrically opposed. They're going to end up with like, fuck it. Sorry. No, we're like supposed to be fantasizing, but it, it would actually be like Tori Kelly, her. I mean, like, come on. You know it would. You it know it would. absolutely would. You know it for it sure would. would. I want it to be Gaga, Adele. Right. Yeah, Adele, Ariana, Ariana, Demi. Uh-huh. Yeah, that uh, sounds right. That sounds right. Who are yeah. we not thinking of that are real? We don't have a lot of belters. That's the other we thing. We don't. That was yeah. such a huge part of pop music at that time that there was like big and small diva belters. Like you had to kind of be able to sing, sing, sang. I think we don't do that as much anymore. What about like a SZA? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because like she's a, a, a really of- good singer, but we don't hear her belt because her music is not about belting. But I bet you well, she that, could. Yeah. That's not popular in R&B now. Now it's much more alt R&B. It's smokier. It's Summer yeah. Walker. Right. And that stuff is very it's cool. It's rappy. We, yeah. We don't have those massive Mm-mm. singers. People aren't looking for yeah. that at the moment. We have Adele and Ariana and yeah. Demi. Yeah. It, it just it occurred to me a lot of the, the popular big belters are white now, where in the past, a lot of them have been black. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. and there's a lot to be said about why that is. That's systemic and fucked up yeah absolutely but i do love the question i I do too and i really do think it would be a fun thing to try to revive i do too especially in this era where we're like obsessed with nostalgia it seems like an Mm -hmm. obvious thing well i have a question that is kind of a sister question to this one about another cultural event that brought together some of our faves let me play it hi louie first of all i love the podcast so much And I just really appreciate all the time and effort it takes to do these episodes. So thank you. Um, My question is really random, but it's on theme with the podcast. So I need to hear your thoughts on the 2008 Just Stand Up performance from Fashion Rocks. People bring this video up like every couple of days on Twitter. And for good reason, because all the tiers are represented. You have Mariah, Beyonce, Mary J. Blige. Baby Miley, Nicole Scherzinger, Fergie. It's just a lot to unpack, and I always revisit this when I need a laugh. So I would just love to hear all your thoughts. Thank you. All right, iconic question about an iconic pop cultural moment. Just to clarify for everybody, what is being asked here is about a performance at Fashion Rocks in 2008 that featured no less than Beyonce, Carrie Underwood, Rihanna, Miley Cyrus, Nicole Scherzinger, Fergie, Leona Lewis, Keisha Cole, Natasha Bedingfield, Mary J. Blige, Sierra, Mariah Carey, and Ashanti singing a charity song called Just Stand Up at the notorious Fashion Rocks. I think that's now defunct, right? I don't think Fashion Rocks exists anymore, which was like a TV special fundraiser where like fashion raised money for, I guess, like some sort of international charity. I don't know. And there were performances by lots of artists. And at this particular one, this strange, incredible amalgam of women came together to sing this original song written by Babyface called Just Stand Up to raise money for cancer research. All right, so great opportunity to share. So I was in college. My mom was a fashion stylist. And at the time, she was styling both 
Chris Brown, and I believe Rihanna occasionally. And they were both performing at this event. So she was backstage and I was invited to come to Radio City Music Hall. And I got to sit and watch the dress rehearsal for this particular Fashion Rocks. So I watched every performance. It was just me in the sitting in the room along with, you know, a few people that worked for various of the artists. And they rehearsed this Just Stand Up thing. And I was there for it, which is like truly, I feel like so random and iconic of like one of my most iconic things that I randomly stumbled in getting to watch. And every single one of them was there for this rehearsal aside from one person. And Russ, can you guess who that one person was? I guess that it's Mariah Carey. It was Mariah Carey sent a stand-in. Beyonce, (laughs) Mary J. Blige, every other diva was present for this rehearsal besides Mariah, who had one random-ass stand-in girl standing in the lineup. Iconic. Truly, like, talk about diva behavior. That is what we look for. So what was the question exactly? <laughs> I got so wrapped up in wanting to tell that story. I love that story. I think we should do a full episode, <laughs> it, an oral history, one man's expression of just stand up. Here's one thing about it. it. It's such a snapshot in time because A, it's a snapshot of a moment where like Beyonce was down to do something with these other pedestrian <laughs> divas like around her, like which would never happen. Beyonce's in her Etta James wig because she performs at last on the ceremony which is like so funny like did they not have time to take the wig off it's so random and in what world were leona lewis and natasha bedingfield able to like hold a similar place in culture that allowed us to like accept that they were on stage with beyonce mary j blige mariah carey and Rihanna. Like, that is just so funny to me. Like, it's just a snapshot of that moment. You know what I mean? And I think it maybe what it speaks to in a larger sense is pop stars can really feel a certain way in a moment. And you think they're super big. <laughs> and then in reality, like when you look back in history, it doesn't feel that way. So I think it's a genuinely such an entertaining thing to watch. It's so random and funny and like the kind of thing that just never happens anymore. You know what I mean? Also in a real expression of monoculture. You know what I mean? It was like, those were the pop girlies of the moment. Like here they all are. Yeah. The only time that we ever see celebrities awkwardly together now is award shows. And we don't get to see them interact a ton. But I, in 2000s, culture we had a lot more mashups of weird people doing weird stuff together because there was so much television yeah yeah i feel like we would never do these tribute songs anymore it's like a it's a total product of like the we are the world all celebrities coming together to make like what's ultimately a forgettable cheesy song we as a culture have like moved past that well i will remind you that it has been just two years since imagine yes which was like the most widely derided (laughs) thing that's ever happened I don't know. It's really an emblem of that moment. I just, I hope I answered the question. I don't remember what exactly what it was, but that's like my memory of it. I think we are good. Our next call comes via a friend of the pod, Lisa from Eat, Pray, Brittany. Before I play the call, I should say, if you have not listened yet, Louie did a really fun guest spot on that podcast, Eat, Pray, Brittany. Everyone should check it out. And now let's play the call from Lisa. Hey, Louie, it's Lisa from the Eat, Pray, Brittany podcast. 
In light of Hold Me Closer coming out and other recent matchups that we've heard between legacy artists and contemporary pop stars, I wondered what your take was on this trend and who your dream matchups would be. My honest take on this trend is that I find it cheap. I mean, I know that that's like a hardcore thing to say, but I really do. It's not that it hasn't yielded some like things that I like. Like I really do like the Dua and Elton song mm. in spite of myself, but like, I don't know. I, I don't love this. I mean, I think a lot of this is stemming from that Kygo Whitney song, which was mm. a very inventive remake of a remake. <laughs> It's not that there isn't a place for this to happen when there's like lightning in a bottle and I love songs that interpolate other songs. It's not It's not that. There's just something about sort of just like basically remaking the same song that's, of course, you hear the hook of Tiny Dancer and you're going to like the hook of Tiny Dancer. It's one of the greatest pop hooks ever written. It's one of those recognizable. So there's something a little bit cheap about it to me. And I mean, I don't know because there's obviously been great covers like um, i don't think i will always love you whitney covering dolly is cheap or fuji's killing me softly with his song is cheap and essentially i guess you could say that hold me closer is a real radical reinvention of the song if you thought of it as a cover right which it isn't because it's half the old song half a new song No, there's just something chintzy about it that I don't love. When I heard the fucking BB Rexa, David Guetta, I'm blue, Daba D, Daba Die with <laughs> thing, I was just like, this is so cheap. We need new hits. Like, let's come up with good hooks. Like, I don't, it's like there's a way to do that creatively. Like, I'm so thrilled listening to Beyonce sing Donna Summer. Like, that's inventive. Hearing Beyonce sing I Feel Love on Summer Renaissance, thrilling, right? Like, really inventive recontextualization of that that isn't just leaning on that hook to make the song work it's interpolating it into something different <sighs> i don't know i am conflicted because i don't want to be like curmudgeonly about it but i find hold me closer in particular and then that bb rex song i like some of these songs but i think as a trend i find it craven mm. what do you uh, think i will give a much sunnier why are people always saying that to me I, i'll say something and everyone's like well i have a gentler take on it well <laughs> fine i think that there is a relationality to how you hear songs from your past so i think that how you receive one of these types of songs depends on your age and the age that you were when you initially encountered the hit that is being reinterpreted and i have found more frustration i remember when nikki did sir mix a lot i was like this isn't a new song i'm not hearing anything what is going on but hearing some of these new songs i don't know particularly for britney i think that it's such a safe place for britney to land as she re-enters the commercial market and there is something nice and paternal about elton sort of coming in and saying i did this thing with dua and it really worked. It put us both on the charts. Here's an easy way for you to grab a hit. Nobody is going to hate this because everybody already guarantees likes the song. Here is something that you can do to dip your toe back in that's not scary. And I actually think that it would be a really smart decision 
for Britney to do exactly what Elton did and have an entire album where she partners with different people. I would really like to see Britney do something similar with Nile Rodgers. I think that Britney doing like what the Tom Ford Lady Gaga song, I Want Your Love was. Let's throw Britney in on an old chic song. I love Britney's cover of Tom's Diner. Let's see more specifically with Britney and legacy mashups. All right. Well, like, let's put Britney to the side. I want to address a couple things. One is, <laughs> one is Anaconda. Yes. Irritating on some level, but also like the raps on Anaconda, the original raps are equally memorable and enjoyable to me as the like rehashed hook, right? Boy, toy named Troy used to live in Detroit. so money. He was getting some coins. What's the shootouts with the law? But he lived in a palace. Both bought me Alex and McQueen. He was keeping me stylish. Now that's That was Nikki being extremely entertaining. So to me, that song passes. Like, I'm kind of like, okay. I'm equally if not more excited to hear the raps of that song than I am to hear the sample, right? Whereas, like, with Hold Me Closer, it's like, what are the verses of that song? I don't even remember. All I remember is her singing Tiny Dancer on the hook. Like, it's so clearly hinging entirely on that. Then let's also put Britney to the side, because obviously everyone's got a special thing going on with Britney right now where everybody wants Britney to win. And and of course, I do too. I, I just... Yes, fine. This was a, I agree that like, this was a much safer way for Britney to enter the commercial marketplace again. And I wouldn't want anything horrible to happen to Britney. It's like, this is a very cheap way to get hits. Like, come on. I just think it's like anybody singing the hook of Tiny Dancer is going to have a hit. I want more. I don't know. Am I wrong for wanting more? (laughs) (laughs) The commercial intentions are very apparent in a way that is crass. Yeah. I agree. I think it's crass. And I think, yes, can this be done in a good way that ultimately overcomes that crassness? I would say the original Elton and Dua song overcame that for me. I thought it was very good. I think that song took on a life of its own and had its own vibe that was distinct from the original enough, but like utilized the familiarity of the original and it all just kind of worked. We get further down this path, we're going to be getting more and more blue Daba D. I'm, I'm good Daba D. Daba dies. I'm, we're not getting more cold hearts. That's my opinion. So I don't love the trend. And as a result, I really don't want to propagate it. And I'm not going to do any <laughs> other things that I want this to happen. No offense, because right. I love Lisa and I would do anything for you, but not this. <laughs> well, I have a very fun question coming up next. This one comes from Andrew. Hi, Louie and Russ. This is Andrew from Indiana. I am currently en route to Chicago to see the Chromatica Ball, and I'm wondering what are three to five concerts that each of you would have liked to have seen but didn't? Could be anything as recently as Beyonce at Coachella or something that maybe you weren't around for, like Queen at Live Aid. Uh, I apologize for the road noise name in the car. Um, Looking forward to hearing your responses. So I was thinking about this. I'm not sure that I would have wanted to be at the Beyonce Coachella concert because 
I don't think I could have dealt with being at Coachella. Mm. I'm way past my festival age. Unless I am in VIP to the max, I'm not fucking stomping around in the desert in California. I mean, give me a fucking break. Like, it's not happening. So, yes, would I like to have seen the greatest live performance of all time in person if I was, like, perched up with Kylie Jenner in the fucking <laughs> thing? Yes, I would have liked that. But, like, short of that, if I were to be, like, in the crowd for that, I don't know if that would be on my list. That aside, there's a few tours that popped into my noggin that I've always been like, A, either I wasn't old enough slash alive to see, or B, I kick myself every day that I didn't buy a ticket. In the former category is Blonde Ambition Tour. I think the seminal pop extravaganza of the modern age. I would have killed to have seen Madonna in that peak era of her power and music and performance. And I've watched Truth or Dare probably 5,000 times, and I just think pretty much every modern pop tour spawns from that tour. So I would have liked to have seen that. I think similarly, Velvet Rope Tour. Mm. I'm not going to get out of this without talking about Janet. Janet has so many incredible tours, but that tour, I think, also was pretty seminal. And Velvet Rope is my favorite Janet record, and Janet was just fucking killer in that era and you can only see that when it's happening you can only experience that live as i've seen her live in later years and she's still incredible but you know you're not going to capture that moment of seeing them at that time then there's a couple three that i could have gone to that i deeply regret and still think about to this day one is the bangers tour which Mm. I don't know why I didn't go to that. It looked so fun. It is such a visual feast. I think it's like the greatest manifestation of whatever the fuck Miley was doing in that era. And I really am bummed that I missed that tour. And I only like bangers more and more as time goes on. Two is the anti-tour, which like got announced before... Auntie came out and Auntie was like looking floppy and it had been four years and I was like, oh, I don't know. Am I interested? Da, 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 da. And then like that album ended up being my favorite Rihanna album ever and it looked so good and I still regret not going to that. And then the last one is the Born This Way ball because I love Born This Way so much and I really just want a Lady Gaga concert. Like the entire time I was at Chromatica Ball, I was like, I wish she would just do Born This Way in, in Toto. So those are three that jumped to mind. What about you? Blonde Ambition absolutely would have been on there. For me, also Rhythm Nation would have yeah. been on there, particularly like because of choreo. I saw Lil Nas X recently and I was thinking a lot about choreo and formation, how Janet is sort of like the mother of all choreo. Oh, so yeah. for sure that I see Lady Gaga it's the artist I've definitely seen the most. I travel, I go to shows, stuff like that. When I was very young, I used to go to a super club in Toronto. If you've ever seen the movie Party Monster, Peter Gation was the character who had the eye patch. He's a legendary New York nightlife owner of clubs. And he had a club in Toronto when he got chased out of America for tax <laughs> liens. Yes. And I went to this club a lot. It was a, a big moment in, in my life as a club goer. And And Lady Gaga toured to that club. And at the time, I thought that I was like too cool to go. (laughs) Oh my (laughs) God. Is the biggest miscalculation. And you know, I was like, I was 
20 years old and I was listening to a lot of experimental DJs. I was listening to like a lot of club music right. and like indie rock. And I, I was just like, who is this pop star? I'm so dumb. That was the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> and secondarily, another Gaga show, I used to go to South by Southwest a lot and I had a plane ride home and I asked somebody for a favor to get into the Gaga show where she eventually puked up on a performance artist named Millie. No. And I didn't think that I had got the favor. I didn't think it went through. And I landed in Dallas an hour into the ride to have a layover on my way back to Toronto. And an email popped in when my phone turned on and said, you're confirmed plus one. Oh no. <laughs> so uh, I'm not uh, sure whether I'm like sad for you about that or like happy for you that you didn't get to watch Gaga get fucking puked on. You know, I loved it. I would have been here for it. Uh, okay. So yeah, th those are my two. All right, next up we have a question that is about groups, which is fitting because we may have an episode about one of my personal favorite all-time pop groups coming up in the next few weeks. And we also just had BTS last week. A question about the Pantheon and groups. I am about to hit it. Hi, this is Verity, a big Pop Pantheon fan and occasional Discord group contributor. I wanted to ask a question about ranking groups in the Pantheon, so girl bands, boy bands, a lot. A few groups have been featured on the show so far, One Direction, Scissor Sisters and ABBA come to mind, and I imagine a pod will feature more soon. And I was thinking if you approach ranking groups in a slightly different way from solo artists, ABBA is tier 2 for example, but I doubt the average person could list all of their names, even if the, their first initials literally spell the band name. And of course there's often a breakup member of each group, a Beyonce, a Justin, a Harry, a Cheryl, but it's slightly wild to think of an Ali Brooke from Fifth Harmony or a Louis Tomlinson from One Direction in the top tiers. I love Louis from 1D, but he's a classic boy band underdog. And it's funny to think of a tier one icon like Beyonce alongside a tier four or so Kelly Rowland. Um, so I wanted to pick your thoughts on this and do you think it's harder for groups to reach that number one tier stop because of this? Thanks. I try to take every single artist that we talk about on the show in the same way. I feel like this is a similar answer to the question about the dying young thing like mm. it just depends i try to take them all on merit like there's no rule that like a group is less valuable than a solo artist does that make sense like i don't i wouldn't ever approach it that way but like the sort of dying young thing there's things that being in a group usually comes with that probably do affect your pantheon standing not because it's a rule that being in a group makes things this way but because this is how groups tend to go like groups tend to last shorter than solo artist periods do because groups often have intra-group conflict and as mm -hmm. a result they break up and they have shorter discographies. That's like a common thing. You talked about One Direction, great example of this. Like One Direction lasted for five years before everybody was like, or whatever, seven years before everybody was like, bye, like we're doing our own thing. I wouldn't think of it differently though. Like I just, I think that's maybe the main point I'm trying to get across here is that I like, I'm not gonna come in and be like, oh, One Direction is barred from certain tiers in the pantheon because they're a group but i do think there's certain aspects of groupdom that are generally affecting to the way that most groups career trajectories go and thus where they end up in the pantheon does that make sense i don't know placing an act or an artist into the pantheon is both quantitative and qualitative 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I mean, I'm interested in what she said about the fact that like, there's so many groups where you like can't name all of the artists. Like that is interesting to me. But I think like with One Direction, like most people can name all of them, right? I think most people can name some of them. Right. I'm just trying to think like, and also like what are, I mean, like the Beatles are definitely a tier one in the pop pantheon, right? I mean, like there's groups in tier one. ABBA, we had a big debate about that. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think anyone can, as she mentioned, I don't think anyone can name ABBA group members, like most of them. Yeah, correct. Yeah. All right. We do have another question about the pantheon. This one comes from... Austin. Hi, Louie and Russ. It's Austin from Philly. I'm wondering how you think traditional metrics of success in the music industry, such as the Grammys, play into the Pantheon. I know the Grammys can often be really off, but as a Taylor Swift fan myself, I have also grown to sometimes really value them. Thanks. I feel like we've talked about this before on a mailbag. I can't remember. But anyway, I think the answer to your question is... The Grammys are imperfect, but they're all we have, as Danielle Smith talked about on the Donna Summer episode. Like, these these institutions suck, but, like, they also still mean something because the artists act like they mean something, and thus the fans act like they mean something, and so they mean something. They're highly imperfect, but, like, to the extent that artists are still touting themselves as multi-Grammy winners and that, like, it's the first line in people's Wikipedias and it's... Something that artists still show up for and receive and get excited to hold them all in their arms and whatever. Like, they make them have value. Like, the only way the Grammys would stop having value is if Billie Eilish was like, I don't care about this and I'm not going to it and I don't give a fuck if I win. And if Billie Eilish and Olivia Rodrigo and Beyonce and Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B and Little Nas X and everybody who the Grammys need to show up decided that, then they would stop having meaning. But like to the extent that all of those artists are showing up and excited to be there and giddy, genuinely seemingly giddy to win them, which they mostly are, they mean something, even if they're highly off a lot. So that's my feeling. Well, I've got a question about a Grammy winning artist. This is a question about the ranking of a pop icon that we have yet to place into the Pantheon, but we both love her. So I figured that I would include it. Hi guys, my name is Dorian. My question involves something that was discussed in the Discord. In previous episodes, DJ Louie has ranked Janet in Tier 2. I think she has way too many sons and daughters to be Tier 2. Her musical accomplishments and overall impact in culture, especially as a Black female pop icon, warrant Tier 1 status. What do you think will prevent her from being in Tier 1? Um, I mean, I think we're going to save the substance of this question for her episodes of the show, but... The things that I think put it in on the fence are things I've talked about before, which are that I think the Super Bowl incident had a major effect on her trajectory and longevity as a centrist pop figure that she's still recovering from slash maybe has never fully recovered from. And I think that there is a little sissing of her that happens in the shadow of her brother being the quote-unquote king of pop that Mm -hmm. to this day I think people still say oh Michael's little sister and I think that that's had a bit of an effect on her legacy and I think you can see that in the numbers I mean go look at her Spotify spins versus Michael Madonna Prince I mean she's significantly lower there's something about the memory of this stuff that I think the Super Bowl had an effect on if I had to guess and I think also racism has also played a big part in this which is that Janet was like such a trailblazing black female centrist pop star the answer I guess the broad answer to the question is that it's things that I think are largely out of her control. Control. Yeah, no pun intended. (laughs) I think Janet has definitely merited top tier status. I just think it's a question of one of the things the Pantheon is here to assess is like, how does our broader culture think of these people? 
and like how do we assess them in toto as a culture and as much as i think in terms of her influence and output and metrics she's with amongst the top i often find in my travels as a dj as a pop music thinker as someone who interacts with normal people like everybody else does that i'm fighting for her as an underdog Mm -hmm. more than i am like i don't ever feel like i'm fighting for madonna's legacy i don't ever feel like i'm fighting for michael jackson's legacy despite everything with him i don't think i don't ever feel like i'm fighting for elton john's legacy i don't feel like i'm fighting for beyonce's legacy i think like everybody gets that they are who they are like it's not debatable i'm not not out there being like guys you need to understand michael jackson had a huge impact on pop and i feel like i'm in that position with janet all the time and that's the thing that makes me question i think it's gonna be a fascinating conversation when you bring somebody else in to run through it all and after going through the discography and also the point in the question about the sons and daughters i think is really important britney is a direct descendant of Janet, much more so than Madonna. I think that sounds, aesthetics, choreography, she's had so much of an impact. As a a fan, I cannot wait for those episodes. Me too. I mean, it's not my personal assessment. As I said, it's like, I think Janet is among the greatest pop stars of all time. Like, for sure, no questions asked. It's obvious. I too am surprised. Let Let me like agree with Dorian. I too am surprised that there seems to be sort of an amnesia effect about the level of success. You know, mm. no matter how much justice for Janet movements go on here. Uh, well, thank you very much for that question, Dorian. Lou, I've got one more final question for you. It comes via email from Sarah. I'm not sure it's the most interesting thing in the world, but this is a huge part of the podcast creation that Sarah asked about. So I have included it here. Sarah writes, hey, Louie, I love the podcast. You have amazing guests and the audio sounds so crisp and professional in comparison to some of the other podcasts I listen to. I'm wondering about how you make Pop Pantheon. How do you decide who to cover and how do you find guests? How long does it take? And how do you decide who to cover and how do you find guests? And how long does each episode take to make? Thanks. Keep it up. Sarah, where to start with this movie? (laughs) You go first. Well, if you've made it this far in the podcast, maybe you are interested in that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's intense, I would say. Before you came, it was definitely more freeform feeling. I would just be hitting up random critics I respected and being like, who do you want to talk about? Here's my new show. Let's talk about whoever. And it was just kind of like a constant like scrambling and whatever. I do all of the production editing stuff myself. I know people have heard me talk about how we're hiring an editor. That's like a potential new thing we're looking to do. But up until this moment, I've done all of the audio editing myself, which I had never done before. So I'd say the main episodes are a 10-day, full-day process between guest recruitment, which is kind of the beginning. So now, so just I guess to walk it through, like Russ, since Russ has come on, we've streamlined the process a lot more. So Russ and I will sit down in our weekly meetings and think about what artists we want to feature ideally. Like we'll think about a few months in advance and go, we need this type of artist and then this type of artist and then this type of artist. And we're always looking for variety. We want each episode to give a really different take. Like we try not to do similar things in a row. We're always looking for like different eras, different types of stars, different subgenres, different levels of fame and success. Like we're really always trying to work to come up with a diverse array of ideal options. And then Russ will 
go often and like do some research about like who could guest on the show on each of those episodes. So if we have an idea that we want to do, you know, a BTS episode, just to speak about our most recent episode, Russ will go out and sort of be like, here are the critics and experts on BTS. Then we pick our, you know, who we want to be on the show. We reach out to them. Hopefully they say yes. And then there's a prep process where I put together a long outline that is both for me to conduct the interview and for the guests to see. They receive like this multi-page outline that like surprisingly hasn't scared many of them away, but I, it's intense. It's thorough. And then the two of us, presumably, I mean, I don't know. I don't like require the guests to do any prep that they don't you know, want to naturally do. I just sort of say, here's what I'm going to ask you. And I then spend many, many days in a hole with each of the artists that we're going to do, listening to all of their albums, reading as much of the criticism that been out there both contemporary and retrospective whatever and I just like I read as much as I can I get as prepared as I can that process can really vary because sometimes I'm going into it and I'm like I know this artist's work outside and inside and it's like just a refresher or I'm just trying to see what I have new thoughts I take copious notes sometimes I've like never heard this stuff before so I'm really just reacting to it for the first time so that's a couple of days then we conduct the interview which is like long process it's like they usually are the rough interviews are like two and a half hours or three hours long and then there's the editing process which is the most involved part of the whole thing where basically i will take multiple passes at the interview to get it down to its essential core 90 minutes or so and that takes me a few days and then i will write and record the bio section and record an intro and outro and then I'll throw the whole thing together and then there's a day where we do social media stuff. So it's a pretty long process between conception and I guess Russ can speak a little bit to this, but like we're often like very far ahead of ourselves. Like we record many of these episodes far in advance. The schedule gets rejiggered. That BTS episode got recorded a long time ago, but because of Beyonce and things that have come up, things get shuffled around because we want to keep that variety going. Sometimes we'll set out to do an episode on an artist and we just like simply can't find the right guest at the right moment who has the time to do it and like blah, 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 blah. So we'll can that idea and we'll move on to something else. And like, so there's lots of moving parts going on all the time. Is that like a good summary? I think that is a fabulous summary. I came in with my spreadsheets and my documents to help any way that I can. And the thing that I would add maybe is that we are also always monitoring and listening to what the audience is saying as well. We know who you want and we are trying to give it to you at the time that we think that is going to delight you the most. Right. And that is a big part of it. And also with the B-side episodes, we're constantly looking at the Discord and our DMs and our email and episodes like this one where we get to find out what things in the pop music world that our listeners who are their own community of pop pantheon people are talking about what they want to hear about what they want to learn more about and then we have like the fabulous opportunity that people are saying yes to us who are really 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 smart about these things and are giving us their time and yeah we go out and find the best possible people and beg them to come and be on our show a lot of things have to come together for a pop pantheon (laughs) episode to have that's why i always say i i honestly think every single one of them is a small miracle (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much for that question thank you for all of your questions. These were insightful yet silly. I had a lot of fun talking about this stuff. I'm sure Louis did too. If you wrote us a question and you did not hear an answer to it, 
please do stay tuned. We are going to do more mailbag episodes in the future. Make sure that you are following at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram. Join our Discord. You can find the link to that in the show notes or on our Instagram. Please stay tuned. Stay in the loop so you can send us in a question next time. It was so cool to hear the voices. Wasn't it delightful? Yes, it really made the community come alive in a delightful way, I thought. I think we should go out on BB Rexa and David Guetta's I'm good blue. What do you think, Russ? <laughs> I am blue. I'm in need of a guy. I'm blue. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Russ, thank you so much for being on the show. Bye, Louie. Bye. I'm good. Yeah, I'm feeling all right. Baby, I'm going to have the best fucking night